The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, it's always great having you with us here on the Paul Leslie Hour. If you've ever gotten enjoyment, inspiration, or information, you can become a patron. Just go to patreon.com slash the Paul Leslie Hour. On this very episode, we are joined by a studio operator, producer, audio engineer. Phil Hadaway is the man behind 3180 Media Group in Savannah, Georgia. Originally called Real-Time Audio Production, opened in 1984, it changed its name, and some of the most iconic people and brands have chosen 3180 Media Group, brands like NPR, BBC, National Geographic, and artists like Driving and Crying and Miley Cyrus. We're joined by Phil Hadaway. It's a great pleasure. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to talk to you. So tell me a little bit about how it all started for you. Where did you get this interest in recording? <laughs> it started early. Back in the 60s, they had a machine. It was called a four-track, a little cassette, eight-track looking thing. It was about three by three, and it plugged into a player. I just started taking these things apart and was fascinated by the, by the whole process of tape and recording and listening back. And it kind of piqued my interest in music also. I kept pursuing it, so I picked up the guitar, and by 13, I was working in a music store, which was crazy, but 25 bucks a week for a 13-year-old kid was great, and I learned a ton from these people and continued to pursue my, my uh, recording fascination. Larger reel-to-reels became affordable. We had some available, so we were doing demos and things, and 1979, 1980, I was really kind of getting into wanting to do more on the production end instead of playing. So I was, I was still playing in bands, but really wanted to do more in production. So I was doing more and more and more. And in 83, the studio became available. Rocky, the previous owner, decided to sell it. It took a year, but we did a deal. And in 84, I bought the place. And so you're a native of, of Savannah? Luckily. <laughs> Technically, I am a native. My grandparents were here, but dad and mom were off in college, and they happened to visit my grandparents, and my mom went into labor. So I was born here. And on my first birthday, we come to visit my grandparents again, and uh, my mom goes into labor again, and my sister's born on the same day. And of course, dad said, we aren't coming here next year. Moved back here and when I was eight and been here since. Spent some time in Atlanta, a good bit of time in uh, Europe. That became kind of a drag. I was working in Dublin. It was like three weeks there, three weeks back, three weeks there, three weeks back. It was interesting, but I really wanted to be back in the States. I want to tell all the listeners how I became aware of you, how we connected. In my opinion, and I've said this on the show before, one of the greatest sounding records ever would be the Royal Academy of Reality by the group the swimming pool cues. I appreciate that. We spent a lot of time on that record. I, you know, I think it's a beautiful record. It was very challenging. Let me tell you a little bit of the backstory about Jeff and I, the way this came about. The pool cues were a huge Savannah hit. Jeff and I never actually met. We started talking on the phone about a project for a band we wanted to co-produce. He wanted to, wanted to use my studio. So that's how we kind of started working together. 
Then Mo Tucker called Jeff and said, I want to do this record. I want to do a new record. And she didn't want to do it in Atlanta. So she calls Calder and he said, you know, you need to go over to Phil's. And she's fairly close in Douglas to Savannah. It's closer than Atlanta. And she liked the idea. She heard some of the stuff that I'd done, and she was game. And so they came over and spent a few weeks at my place, and we did Dogs Under Stress, which was pretty well-received. That was also Sterling Morrison's last record. So Sterling was playing on it. Sonny Vincent was playing on it. John Sluggett was playing on it from Jad Fair. A lot of guests. Fun record. Uh, Mo playing guitar, not drums. That kind of cemented Jeff and I's relationship. We liked what each other did. And he had some songs, and they were all just pieces. It was like a gigantic Lego set, and every piece was a different color. It's like, okay, make a record. (laughs) The band was skeptical because they had always had, I want to say, larger budgets, and we had no budget. Name producers, all of a sudden, Jeff and I are going to produce and write everything. So there was definitely some skepticism there. So I said, let's just come in and track three songs, and we do it live. The unique thing about those three is... Almost every part we played stayed on that record. The first three songs came together, they liked the way it was working, and we moved on from there. It was a series of challenges to get through most of these songs. It was fun doing it, but it took almost 10 years to make the record. Hmm. What is it that you're looking for in a record sound? What is it that you're, I mean, aside from just it sounding good, is there something in particular that you're searching for? On that particular record, we we didn't have a direction. It evolved. It was like something would happen, and we had great players. I mean, we'd we'd have somebody and say, we want you to do your thing. We don't want to tell you what to do. We had Marty Kearns playing keyboard and said, Marty, just play your thing. We might come up with an idea after something he does, but like we were doing one song, uh, Out of Nothing, which has the clavulin in it. It doesn't actually work. It just makes weird noises. The more you learn how to play it, the worse you get at it. It's like we started the take, and he's just playing this stuff, and it's just bizarre sound. You hear, you can hear it on the record. <laughs> and the more we tried to do more takes, the worse it got. So we said, stop, we're done, that's it. So we had two takes of that, and it was perfect. We called it everybody we knew. I mean, Brendan O'Brien played bass on three songs and probably paid for half the record. And <laughs> just beautiful bass parts. Mm. We had Denny Wally from The Mothers of Invention and Captain Beefheart play on the record. Jeff would bring people in off the street. We were recording some of the stuff in little five points, and he'd just hear a trumpet guy play in the corner and say, hey, man, you want to come play on a track? <laughs> <laughs> I played a lot of the guitars, a lot of the bass parts, and a lot of the keyboard parts, along with Marty, and a lot of the stuff was sequenced. But this was kind of pre-digital age of sequencing. But we did do a lot of digital manipulation. Brendan actually let us use his, what's called a Roland DM800, which was one of the first digital workstations that was portable. So we could take tracks fly them around, move them into spaces. If you listen to Deep South, there's actually about 50 tracks of Jeff singing ooze. And (laughs) so we just, we got one complete round and kind of flew it in into the different sections that we wanted it at. Great group of people, a lot of practice, a lot of trial and error. Bob Elsey on guitar, just amazing. Handing the guitar in play. Everything he played was perfect. We were definitely listening to a lot of things at the same time, which were influencing the record too. Jeff and I talked about this other night. I was really into Webb Wilder at that point. That's all I was listening to, was just the interplay between their guitar players. We were trying to make this elaborate, you know, multi-layered spatial record, but I wanted to have the guitars very pointed and small, but big at the same time, which means 
kind of defining the sound field into a more mid-rangey kind of sound. And I like my Vox AC-30s, which kind of give you that sound. And we were also listening to the Beach Boys. Everybody knows about tomorrow. The riff is basically the Beach Boys do it again. It just fit perfectly, but that's what I was listening to. And whether consciously or subconsciously, it worked its way into the song. Very interesting stuff. Being that 3180 Media Group is in Savannah, Georgia, I'm sure a lot of the listeners are wondering, there are two great songwriters who come from Savannah. I'm talking, of course, Johnny Mercer, and then there would be... Tony Arata. The man who wrote the dance, Tony Arata. Any connection? In the South, we're all related. <laughs> um, I didn't uh, appreciate Johnny until later. I started doing a lot of work with the Savannah Jazz Orchestra here in Savannah and the, and the Coastal Jazz Association. I got an education pretty early. I knew about Johnny. And I learned more and more and more and more as we went on. There was a movie being filmed here in, in town, and they wanted Wayne Shorter to do the soundtrack. I knew Wayne Shorter from Birdland, and that was it. I didn't know. That was still in my educational period where I didn't know that he was <laughs> with Miles Davis. So Wayne comes in, and Diane Reeves comes in. And so you've got a total of about 45 Grammys between the two of them. <laughs> we did like three songs. We did Nefertiti, Lush Life, and a couple of other little jam pieces. And looking back, it was amazing because Wayne has a suitcase, and he opens it up, and it's all the handwritten charts from, like, Nefertiti. He's got every part that he wrote out from the original recordings with Miles Davis. And, wow. and it's like he has everything he's ever written is there in the suitcase. This is the real thing, and I really like that. And Diane came in and sang Lush Life, which is a hard song to sing, and she just killed it. And I had some very good friends that were that led me in that direction and really were great arrangers and were contemporaries of Johnny. I've done a couple of records that were Johnny Mercer tribute records. I got to learn every Johnny song. Just cool that he's from here. Tony and I have been friends forever. Played in bands. We've done tons of demos. In 86, he moved to Nashville he was still coming back to Savannah, so there was a period there where he was working on this film called The Thing Called Love. Tony already had one song in the movie, and it was, it was the song that River Phoenix sang. And Tony gets a call from Peter Bogdanovich saying, I need a song that's fast. I don't care what it's about, but it's going to play in the truck every time they're driving down the road. So I get a frantic <laughs> phone call from Tony that night and saying, can I get in the studio tomorrow morning and write a song? I said, Yes. I programmed some drum stuff up. We did bass, guitars, completed it, FedExed it out. Nine months later, Clay Walker releases it, and it goes to number one. <laughs> you have no idea until you put it out there. <laughs> He's an incredibly talented guy, incredibly funny. Absolutely. And a great guitar player, too. All the listeners out there, they can go to 3180media.com. There was one name... There was a few names, but there was one name that in particular my eyes were drawn to. And I saw the name Bobby Gentry. Now that must be a story. Bobby was probably one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. We were writing together. Her idea was to do a, a musical in Branson. Not with her. Yeah. Um, but she still was a good singer, writing interesting songs, hard to play. 
<laughs> lots of chord changes in typical Bobby fashion. So we worked on a lot of stuff together and became really good friends. One of the biggest thrills is she brought in the little guitar, the little Martin, I think it's a T7, one of the Martin's smallest bodied guitars. It came originally with steel strings on it. They hurt her fingers. So she put nylon strings on there. So if you listen to Ode to Billy Joe, that's her playing, and that's that sound. It's almost ukulele-ish. She was doing background vocals, and she had accumulated enough overtime to get like 15 minutes to record some of her own stuff. So they put the mics up, and she records it basically in one take. They took it to Capitol. They went, this is the weirdest song I've ever heard. It has no chorus. It has no bridge. It's just a bunch of rhymes. But it captivated the A&R guy. And he said, you know, this, this is kind of interesting. So they sent it out and had the strings and the upright bass put on it. You know, it was a huge hit. We miss her. And now I've heard she is back in Mississippi. And has become Roberta Streeter again. Interesting. And is reclusive as ever. Great lady. Love working with her. I'm going to ask about one of the names on the list. And this is just because I think... His music is just incredible. I think he's the cat's pajamas. Michael Penn. The only thing I really ever did for Michael was I did a remix of All That Implies. That was just a great tune. I did some creative editing and some samples and played some guitars on it, changed it around a little bit. When Brendan became president of Epic, he had two labels. One was 57 Records and another one was Shot Put. So 57 was the main thing, and first person he signed was Michael Penn. And then he had the smaller label, which was Shot Put. We would do records for five to $10,000. You got a two-week window to make this happen. I was working in another studio in Atlanta with the smaller stuff, and Michael was working in the big studio with Brendan. Brendan actually is the one who got me in, kind of into doing real records. He was working for me for a period of time there where I was doing these Irish records, and going to Atlanta and having Brendan mix it. He kind of encouraged me to step up from being the producer into being the recording engineer and producer mixer all in one, which is what he is. And he encouraged me to do the same. So I crash course the SSL console, learned how to use it and started doing my own mixing. I owe everything to Brendan. Brendan brought me in on a lot of his records, uh, the Dan Baird record. When he was recording Dignity for Bob Dylan, he needed somebody to engineer his guitar playing. I'm there. I'm going to engineer it, of course. Really? The original recording of Dignity was actually fairly old. It was just Bob playing piano and singing. So the first thing Brendan did was he got Steve Gorman from the Black Crows to come to his house, and they recorded the drums for it. Then Brendan played bass on it. Rick Taylor played banjo. Brendan played everything else, keyboards, all the electric guitar parts. That's what got Brendan the gig on Bob Dylan Unplugged. <laughs> it's being the right place, right time. <laughs> Watching Brendan work helped drive my ethic also. Oh, yeah. Working with Brendan, one of the things he taught me, he said, is in the studio, you have to become invisible. You disappear as a personality. That was huge. We were recording the Dan Baird record, and nothing was working. And he looked at everybody and said, you know, this is ceasing to be fun. And he walked out of the room. And we're looking at each other <laughs> like, what does that mean? And he comes back in about 10 minutes, and he's got all these baseball gloves. And we go out to the parking lot and throw the baseball around for an hour come back in and we laid down like four tracks after that brendan had played guitar on mick jagger's solo record primitive cool he played a lot of guitar on it i just finished five records in a row i worked on jack logan's record buzz me in 
I just finished Paul K and the Weatherman with Mo Tucker producing the Driving and Crying record. We were doing stuff with Clay Harper, and Clay gets a call. He wanted a place to hang out, so Clay said, "You want to engineer Mick Jagger?" <laughs> and I said, uh, "Yeah." Not a problem. I come back and we assembled a group, uh, Joey Huffman, Billy Pitts from Georgia Satellites. Mick was playing piano, guitar. This is a songwriting session for Bridges to Babylon. We're working. People are calling. I say, Mr. Jagger, there's this phone call for you. Come get the phone. And after about a third day, he says, will you do me a favor? Stop bleeping calling me Mr. Jagger. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll try. <laughs> Just We would sit on the couch back behind the console and Mick would listen to playback and we'd look at each other and go like that's Mick Jagger just look at each other like, <laughs> like and then Brendan called and said how's it going I said I think it's going pretty well he says well is he dancing I said yeah yes then you're doing good <laughs> you know that's a rolling stone we're talking about but again if we look at all of the different credits you're going to see everything from some of these classics like the great the late, great Greg Allman, yeah. and then people like Natalie Merchant, and then people of today like Miley Cyrus. Who knocked you out? Who, when you saw their raw talent, you just thought, this is something? Actually, it's more in the film portion of my business. I've done 120 feature films as mostly a dialogue recordist or mixer. You know, we do a lot of looping, which is replacing dialogue on sets that sound terrible. And the person that absolutely blew me away was Matt Damon. He was just incredible at his craft. It's a special talent to be able to lip sync something that you aren't even able to see. We were doing The Talented Mr. Ripley, and he's got a scene. He's on a boat. It's in the middle of the Mediterranean, and there's 8 million seagulls, and it's a diesel boat, and the wind's blowing about 40 miles an hour. And he had this pretty long dialogue with Kate Blanchett that he had to replace. He does it a few times, and you know we're correcting as we go. It's probably about a minute piece. So Matt comes in and looks at it, and he says, let me watch that again. And we watched it about 20 times. And I'm going like, what is he looking at? This is fine. And he looks at me, dead straight face, and says, damn, I'm good. And then (laughs) then just starts cracking up. He blew me away. Musician-wise, I mean, there's there's just been so many. Randall Bramlett, it just doesn't get any better than that. I saw him a couple weeks ago in Duluth. Guy's great. You know, Dan Baird, same thing. He gets better. Miley was great. I shouldn't have gotten that gig. This was in 2009, almost 2010. I had kind of gotten out of the music and just really focusing on film and and my production company and everything else and hadn't done a record in a while, just some mastering jobs and little things like that. I get a call from my agent and he says, I got a project for you. I'm really not into a project. I'm definitely not into a project that means traveling. And he goes, no, it's not traveling. And you really need to do this. I'm not interested. He goes, you really need to do this. I said, <laughs> what is it? He goes, don't hang up. I said, okay. okay. He goes, it's Miley Cyrus. Okay. Um, to me, she's still Hannah Montana, this period. She's 16 or 17 <laughs> years old. She hasn't done anything, released anything as Miley Cyrus. They're putting a lot behind this record, and this is going to be huge. You need to put your name on this. They want to lock the studio out for four months. It was primarily me and her and her mom. Tish was here. Some of the writers would come in. John Shanks, one of the producers, came in once, but most of the time we connected via ISDN. 
I'll have to say it was a fun session. Although listening to Party in the USA, her sing the vocal 782 times wasn't a lot of fun. <laughs> we had a great time. It's going on the sell. I, I, I want to say we're about at 16 million total sales. At one point, it had the most digital downloads of any song, 7 million with Party in the USA. Right place, right time. I mean, she was in Savannah making a movie. She couldn't leave. That was the whole problem. <laughs> she couldn't go to L.A. to do this or Nashville or Atlanta. They wouldn't allow her to leave the city. It's crazy. <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't mention Paula Dean. Tell us about that. Paul and I started working together in 2005. We did a book reading for Simon & Schuster. We developed a really good relationship. I came on the crew and still work with her today. I produced and directed and wrote 26 episodes of Positively Paula, which is still in the air right now. And I go to her house for Thanksgiving every year, which is not a bad deal. (laughs) I see. So, Phil, what are you working on at the moment? We're blessed with the film industry. You know, our tax credit system here is second to none. Georgia is actually like the number two or three producer in the world of content. You can shoot year-round. January the 4th is winter, and then we go back to summer. (laughs) So they can shoot all the time. A new series just started up here that has a five-season run. When the actors are here, they're working on other projects. We just finished a great movie called Earthquake Bird for Netflix with Alicia Vikander, who is an Academy Award winner. Patricia Arquette's in town working on another film. At the same time, we were working on Toy Story with her. She's, she's in that Toy Story 4. We had the opportunity to do a director's cut with Ben Stiller for Escape from Donna Morrow, which was a, I want to say, an HBO miniseries. And before that, F. Murray Abraham was in here. So in two months, I had three Academy Award winners <laughs> in the place. I'm going like, this just shouldn't be happening here. Um, he was in doing, we're working on, which I'm very excited to say, the remake of Lady and the Tramp, which they were here for a year shooting. And so we, were, we did all the voices for Lady and the Tramp. Interesting. And we just now, the <laughs> last week, I just worked on the Wu-Tang miniseries. That will not be shown on television. I can tell you that. (laughs) Uh What do you you think all of these perspectives, I mean, because we're talking about everything from great classic people in American music to the Wu-Tang Clan, Miley Cyrus, I mean, (laughs) you've had a very eclectic experience. What do you think that's done for you personally and for your perspectives? I like working on different types of music. I like working on jazz. I like working on true country. I like working on pop stuff. I like working on, you know, rock stuff. I like doing everything. I actually just bought a 13 CD set of Foghat for no apparent (laughs) reason other than it was on sale. And that was like the first concert I ever went to. At the same time, I bought Donald Fagan's new five set just because it had 10 extra songs on it. So I'm, you know, I grew up listening to everything. Steely Dan was kind of my go-to. But then I had groups like Pousset Dart Band, which I was turned on to by the older people at the music store. I was exposed to a lot of stuff early. And I think that's the key. If anything, being 13, 14, 15 years old and being in a Millie Jackson concert, which I was, was awakening. I was on stage with the Commodores at 16. They came into Savannah to open up for Richard Pryor. <laughs> 
they had no equipment, so they came in to rent all the equipment. And my boss says, okay, y'all can rent it, but this guy's got to be on stage with it the whole time. <laughs> what is the best thing about being Phil Hadaway? Hmm. My relationships. I still have my mom. She's three blocks away from me. And I still have most of my friend base still with me. Most of the people I went to school with are still here. I only had 28 people in my graduating class, and 26 of them are still here. And most of them are in Savannah. I'm incredibly thankful for that. I always like to give the guest the stage, and it's not limited to recording. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Totally open-ended. I mean, I try and mentor a lot of younger people coming up that want to do this by saying, go to college. Well, I didn't do that. I think you have to be realistic. If you're passionate enough about it, then you can make it work. I was incredibly lucky. I'm probably one of the few that pulled this off. Right place, right time. I think if you try to repeat what I did, it's just a recipe for disaster. I think education is paramount. If you want to do this as a hobby, because there's no money in it anymore, you got to remember that. As a career, I would be pretty guarded. I don't want to discourage anybody, but there just aren't a lot of openings for hit producers. Probably isn't going to happen ever again in our lifetime. True. Just because of the way the music business has deteriorated into the record company still owning everything. When an artist has 25 million plays on Spotify and gets a check for $2,000, there's something wrong with that. Hmm. I think the main thing is you got to be flexible. I would say definitely go to school or get a trade. Learn to be a welder and make 80 bucks an hour. <laughs> think about the long term. Are you going to get married? Are you going to have children? Where are you going to live? That's a question for a lot of people, not just in this industry, but in life right now. I'd say have a backup plan. I was stupid and young <laughs> and knew everything and just went for it and was very fortunate that it's worked out for 35 years. I think if you're going to be in the music business, you need to know how to play music too. Go back and look at the classic guys. Go back and look at Tommy Dowd, one of my favorite people on earth. I spent more time with Tommy talking about how he did things and how he chose songs and switched the takes around on Bobby Darren so that Wexler wouldn't find out about it. He was my guy. Lucky enough to work with him and spend time with him was just another treasure. But I think we're losing that emotional attachment to, to the music biz and to the song. I think it's just, it's become a formula and that's what people want. It's true. Tommy brought something that nobody else could bring. The Aretha session would not have happened without Tommy in that room. The Muscle Shoals session with Aretha would have never, ever happened. I learned a lot from him, the way he handled sessions. That's what kids need to think about today is learning from somebody else who's been there. And there's less of those people that have been there. That's true. For the most part, recording studios remain magical and invaluable places. And I think the give and take with the producer and the team is incredibly important or it just becomes this one-dimensional thing, too self-indulgent, and just doesn't play. I've seen Brendan go out and hand a guitar to a guy and say, play this one chord. Wham! That's it. Okay, I got it. And then he comes and listens to playback and you go, that's brilliant. I would have never thought of that. And that's what a producer, mixer, engineer can bring to something at the right moment. When that trust happens, it turns the whole session around. Well, Phil, 
Thank you very much for spending time with us. I appreciate it. This has been fun to talk about. I hope it makes some sense. I appreciate the time (laughs) talking to you. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Until next time. Yes, sir. All right, sir. Bop, bop, dealy, bop, bop, ba-doo, bop, zee, bock, a doodly, not bock, suki, chacha, kooka, baza, looka, baza, neck, a poke, get a go, da dum, bock, doodly, zan, ba-dum, a-dake, ba-dake, yeah, zika, baka, puka, long, gong, doodly, boo, goodbye.